Commutify presents Between the Lines with Andy Keaton. Each week, we explore the challenging issues transportation demand management professionals face on their journey to transition commuters from driving alone to more sustainable, shared and active commuting habits. Be sure to subscribe to hear next week's episode and check out our exclusive commuter playlists on Spotify. This is Between the Lines with Andy Keaton. Hi, everyone, and welcome aboard to the Between the Lines podcast. I'm Andy Keaton, and today we're joined by Todd Littman. Todd is the founder and executive director of the Victoria Transport Policy Institute, an independent research organization dedicated to developing innovative solutions to transport problems. His work helps expand the range of impacts and options considered in transportation decision-making, improve evaluation methods, and make specialized technical concepts accessible to a larger audience. His research is used worldwide in transport planning and policy analysis. And today we're gonna to be talking a bit about uh, his research, particularly his recent book um, that he came out with and published over the last year. Um, called Smart Planning for Emerging Transportation Technologies. And funny enough, that is our topic today. Before we get into that, though, thanks for being on, Todd. Thank you very much, Andy. This is great. Perfect. So today we're talking about why smart planning for emerging transportation technologies will help save the planet. And I think it's important, as you uh, point out in your book, to kind of give us a a good grounding of what transportation planning um, has looked like, what the conventional wisdom has looked like over the you know past century or, or more, um, and and really talking about this idea you bring up of planning for faster speeds. And uh, we had been talking before, and you you know you had mentioned that you know planning for faster speeds is grossly inequ inequitable and it's environmentally harmful. So can you tell us a little bit more, Todd, what is the conventional planning wisdom? Why does it favor speed? What does that mean? And what are the negative impacts of, of that? Sure. So that's a great question. During the last century, uh, we our transportation system has really evolved from uh, slow and local to fast and distant. So in 1900, uh, when, I, when I really start the focus of my analysis, there were no cars, private automobiles, uh, and, and there was no air travel. And so most people relied primarily on walking to get around. Uh, people would, you know, some people bicycled and some people would take a trolley or a train for uh, occasional trips. But for the most part, <clears throat> transportation was walking. That was the main, main, by far the main form of travel. And so an average person traveled about a thousand miles, uh, about, uh, 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 yeah, about a thousand miles a year. That was the normal limit. Automobile transportation became available and uh, over the 20th century, the, the vehicle technology improved so the cars could go faster. And roads got paved and expanded, so it was possible to go at higher traffic speeds. And, of course, air travel also developed. So our world accelerated. And as part of that, um, 
uh, the distances that we traveled, uh, the, the uh, distribution of destinations, I say, I describe it, uh, expanded. So um, we, most people or a lot of uh, families no longer relied on, on uh, say, local stores and local schools. It became possible to live far distant from where you worked and shopped and went to school. And that imposes a number of costs. So part of my research looks at what are the full costs of going from a local-oriented, primarily pedestrian and bike-oriented transportation system to a much more dispersed automobile-oriented transportation system, what we call, of course, automobile dependency. And what my research indicates, uh, you know, what I'm able to quantify is that the, the costs are huge. For example, a typical um, worker now devotes about 20% of their budget and therefore about 20% of their workday to paying for their automobile and the roads <clears throat> and parking facilities that those vehicles require. So 20% of your workday is devoted to transportation. Wow. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting way to, 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 to measure speed. Most people measure speed, what we call nominal speed. Uh, how, many, how much time does it take to travel a certain distance? But one interesting approach is to use effective speed, which is the time you spend traveling and the time you spend earning money to pay for your travel. Mm. And when you measure travel speeds nominally, of course, our speeds over the 20th century, when we went from uh, walking, say, about 1,000 miles a year, to uh, now the average motorist drives about 12,000 miles a year. So we've accelerated by an order of magnitude our speed and our distance. But when you take into account the time that a motorist has to spend earning money and caring for their vehicle, your speed actually for, for a typical um, moderate income worker, so somebody that's earning, say, under $30 an hour, is your automobile travel is actually not that fast. And for many trips... Uh, or many people, it's actually faster to rely on, on, on bicycling or public transit than it is to buy a car and have to devote all that time to, to earning money to pay for it. So that's uh, one example. Another, of course, is that it, uh, the automobile-oriented transportation system is harmful to our health. And there's a lot of good research demonstrating that people who live in more automobile-dependent areas have more have much higher traffic fatality rates and um, many uh, uh, diseases associated with sedentary lifestyle and the additional air pollution. And um, there's also uh, the environmental uh, costs. So uh, putting all these together, you could say that our our uh, increase in speed provides often provides relatively modest net benefits when you take into account all these costs. And 
those costs are highly regressive. That is, if you're a, a, a well-paid person, you're earning, say, $50 an hour, the cost of owning that car only takes uh, a small portion of your workday. It's the lower income workers, people that earn a wage under $20 an hour that are devoting a good portion of their budget and a good portion of their workday to servicing their cars, to maintaining those cars. And they are, and so lower income people tend to be much worse off in an automobile dependent uh, community where they lack the affordable modes than wealthier people. So uh, one of the insights of my research is the is the unfairness, the fundamental unfairness of a of transportation planning that in various ways favors automobile oriented over more affordable forms of transportation. So I think you know there's there's a lot there that you've that you've said and and to to kind of unpack, but it comes down to the planning for speed which is planning for the automobiles made us dependent on the, on the car, which is, has equity impacts, negative equity impacts, negative environmental impacts, negative cost impacts. And when you take into account how much time it takes to even afford to drive the car, negative time impacts. And uh, so, I mean, it seems like this is pointing well to an idea that you then have, have discussed as well, which is presumably, um, as faster speeds is negative, uh, kind of, uh, situation for, for the transportation planning community, presumably it makes sense that it's planning for slower speeds would provide more affordable and healthier and resource efficient alternatives. So what does that look like? Why is it important to shift to planning for these other alternatives that we call slower speed, but are really just non-car alternatives. Sure. Well, that's the, the challenge that we face. To put it simply, speed is inherently expensive. It costs sure. money to, you know, to, to buy the car and the fuel for the car, but it also costs a lot of resources, um, you could say money or or land or whatever to provide the facilities, the roads and parking spaces that those cars demand. And um, if you're concerned about the environment, uh, uh, automobile transportation is inherently resource intensive. It requires far more energy to transport to 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 for to to transport, say, a, a ton of metal uh, with a human being than it does to transport that same human being on a bicycle or walking or with shared mobility, that is uh, uh, ride sharing or, uh, mm -hmm. or, or public transportation. So it's, it, the, it's not a question of what's good or bad so much as what is efficient and inexpensive versus what is uh, expensive and resource intensive and therefore costly, resource uh, intensive. So uh, that's what my research looks at. We're at an interesting time. You know, uh, in 1900, 
uh, people had only vague ideas about what it would mean to introduce all these motor vehicles into our lives. And of course, uh, most people involved, the automobile manufacturers and the petroleum industry and most transportation engineers focused on the positive benefits. If we can get people to travel faster and they have more, uh, they, can, they can access more destinations within their time budget, they're gonna be better off. So it was a very exciting time. I grew up in the 1960s when um, you know every year the new cars, the new car models had new technological innovations, and it was an exciting time to be to be shopping for a car or, or being a motorist. Um, now the truth is, uh, if if uh, if automobile uh, manufacturers had a truth in advertising requirement, all those advertisements for cars which show passengers who are bored and impoverished and overweight. Because the truth is automobile transportation does have some very negative impacts on the people that are relying on those vehicles. Um, and, and, and now we have, the, let's say, the wisdom of experience that allows us to say that, yes, in many communities, we become too automobile dependent, that, that we overbuilt the roads and the parking facilities and underbuilt the more resource efficient alternatives. And as a result, our communities are worse off overall, that we should have, as in during the 20th century, as motor vehicle, um, uh, um, the motor vehicle transportation system developed, we should have been more discerning and um, ensured that even as these vehicles, these faster vehicles became available, that we didn't spoil the other more resource efficient and affordable modes, that we didn't spoil walking and bicycling and public transit. Um, so looking back, we can say there were some mistakes that were made. Now we have probably more transportation innovations becoming uh, commercially available or being developed than any time in the past. There's things like uh, e-bikes and e-scooters and uh, various types of car and bike sharing and um, electric cars and possibly self-driving cars and self-driving taxis and things like uh, the Hyperloop pneumatic tube transport and tunnel roads and uh, vertical takeoff and landing um, self-driving air taxis and um, supersonic, the possibility of com commercial supersonic jets. All of these are, are really exciting new uh, transportation technologies and services. It's time to look critically at them. Before they start dominating our lives, we need to step back and uh, uh, be skeptical, be discerning, and be able to say, well, that uh, new transportation innovation, it would make sense in this situation, but it doesn't make sense in that situation. Or another example is we would say, well, we'll allow, for example, air taxis or drone deliveries for high priority 
uh, trips, say emergency trips, taking people to hospitals or delivering medicine. But it really doesn't make sense for the typical suburban commuter to have one of these air taxis departing from their, their backyard and creating noise and risk that, that harms their neighbors. Or let me ask you this, Andy. If your neighbor started having uh, beer and pizza delivered by uh, drones late on Saturday nights for their, for their backyard party, would you, uh, would you allow that? Or would you be more inclined to deploy some anti-aircraft device and shoot down those annoying drones that are going to be flying over your bedroom late at night? What do you think, Andy? Should, should drone pizza delivery be allowed, encouraged, restricted, or forbidden? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think... I think everyone would generally agree that it's uh, there needs to be some restrictions on drone delivery and and all of these uh, technologies coming out. I think that's what you're getting at is let's not get into a a paradigm here where we're looking back a hundred years from now and uh, saying, well, look, the skies are now filled with drones and flying cars and um, or autonomous vehicles are driving around without people picking up people's. Uh, laundry for them and traffic's worse than ever environmental impacts are bad and uh health impacts are worse so yeah i mean i think yeah i think it's a it's a really interesting question to to ponder i want to kind of throw back another question back at you which is so here we are we're at this critical juncture let's say a new mobility paradigm is right around the corner it's already starting with electric vehicles like you said and um, electric micro mobility and driverless vehicles, right. You know, already running in some, some areas, but how can we plan for the right new mobility paradigm? How can we do this in a smart way? Um, and I know in your book, you talked about, um, you did an analysis of some new mobility, uh, that, that, you know, is out there or is coming. Um, you looked at eight impacts. I want to know from you, you know, what did that analysis show you? What, what were you looking at with that analysis? Um, what, what kind of mobilities came out scoring well? Like where should we you know, be heading? What, is that, what does that show us? Right. That is exactly the critical question that especially uh, policymakers and transportation professionals should be asking. But Really, everybody is going to have to struggle with these issues. So um, to, to respond specifically to your question, um, my research emphasizes the need for comprehensive analysis, that we're not just asking which is the fastest form of transportation, but we also ask questions such as which uh, new modes also help achieve our affordability and social equity goals, for example, that they are suitable for, uh, for uh, people who, for whatever reason, can't drive and they're affordable to low-income households, uh, which of the new mobilities are resource efficient and therefore um, uh, 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 minimize environmental uh, damages, 
um, uh, which help achieve health goals. And so there are a number of ways, uh, a number of impacts that I think need to be considered. That's the, let's call it the analysis framework that I, mm -hmm. that I emphasize. I, I uh, recommend and use myself in my analysis. Um, the, the other part of that is to ask, um, looking at the new mobilities, um, uh, um, how would we, how, what's, the, what's the policy framework so that we would favor the ones that provide the greatest social benefits and that we can limit the use of the, the new mobilities that may be inappropriate in a particular situation. Let me give you just one example of one of the, of the challenges that um, communities are gonna face. In a typical city, if the, um, if the parking, off-street parking is priced, but roads are free. If somebody has a self-driving electric car, it's actually going to be cheaper for them to program the car just to drive around in circles around the block continuously for hours on end rather than pay for an off-street parking space. Or they could program their car to drive home and to park back at, at your home garage. Either way, you're generating that that let's call it, let's use, for example, that trip to work is now going to generate for every mile of, of, of useful transportation, of you being transported by your car, your car is going to get, generate two, three, or four miles of travel on public roads. And so it's going to be contributing to traffic congestion and accident risk and wear on the roads and pollution emissions. And even electric vehicles do produce various types of pollution, you know, the generating the electricity and the tire particulates and things like that. So uh, if you're a smart city planner or public official, you're going to want to make sure that, uh, that, that motorists are discouraged from driving any more miles, any, adding more, any more vehicle miles in is absolutely necessary and would rationally choose to pay for that on-street park, off-street parking space rather than have their vehicle drive the extra miles under most circumstances. So first of all, we need to be able to discuss this uh, indirect impact, what's called an induced vehicle travel, and do some modeling. We transportation professionals, we can estimate the additional miles that autonomous vehicles are going to generate, but we need a little bit more research to validate some of those estimates. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. The real challenge is to ask, what does it mean for our policies? How should communities mm. respond so we're not so that autonomous electric vehicles are not creating a whole new set of problems and that we, we can say, yeah, this is a nifty new technology, but let's not overdo it. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, a key point is, and you said earlier, there's a lot of exciting technologies out there. Electric vehicles are exciting. Autonomous you know, driverless vehicles are exciting. The question is, how can we build a system that utilizes them um, efficiently and isn't having them drive around in circles and, uh, you know, we're not using up the world's lithium and, and 
powering our vehicles with, with coal. We're, we're doing this in a, in a smart way. I think that's important to think about. So let's kind of, there's, there's a lot here and, and certainly, you know, if someone, if someone wants to dive more deeply into this, uh, we'll provide more information um, online and, and in our email newsletter for you to find uh, Todd's book and, and his other papers that he's been writing um, to read more up on this because it goes it's, it goes really you know pretty far in depth and it's, it's pretty interesting. But let's move on to kind of let's let's think positively here. Let's think about the future. We you know this is a TDM podcast and we're, we talk about TDM and and various solutions, micro mobility and uh, and and ride sharing and all these kind of new these new ways to get around cities. Um, you talk about at the end of, of your, uh, or towards the end of your book, what this optimal future transportation system could look like. What, I'll just, I'll just put you on the spot here. What do you imagine it to look like? What could we do if we plan in a smart way? What could that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Now, of course, I, I always have to, uh, emphasize that, of course, everybody's needs are unique. Every family and every person's uh, travel demands are unique. And so a lot of what we're talking about is really um, uh, responding correctly to the types of travel people want to engage in, but Mm -hmm. then scaling up to look at it from a community perspective. So it's fine, you know, it might be fine that you love to drive your Harley Davidson motorcycle at high speeds or uh, that you are eager to get uh, um, uh, an air taxi that will fly you, you know, from your suburban home to your downtown office. Okay, that's fine, but uh, we need to pay attention to how those decisions affect your neighbors. So to me, an optimal transportation system, regardless of, of the technology, is one that offers people diverse uh, uh, mobility and accessibility options and provides the incentives for people to choose the most appropriate mode for each trip. So you have, uh, so, so an efficient and equitable transportation system a, encourages people to walk and bike for local errands Mm -hmm. and to use public transit or some sort of shared mobility when they're traveling on busy urban corridors, when you're traveling from one neighborhood or one city to another, and um, and allows people to use automobiles, uh, but but limits it to those trips where that mode is truly the most appropriate Travel option, and um, and encourages that 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 those vehicles themselves be low polluting and be operated in ways that minimize external costs, minimize traffic congestion and accident risk and roadway costs and parking costs and 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 pollution costs. So that means we have to think about transportation demand management. We need to think about what it takes. So that somebody who could drive a car, that has a car in their driveway or could dial up the local self-driving taxi or ride-hailing service, would still choose to walk uh, 
a few blocks or bike a few blocks to a local store when it's time to shop, or would still choose to use public transportation of some sort when they're traveling on one of those busy corridors where they're just where an additional car would add traffic congestion. My research suggests that given existing technologies, if um, if we more efficiently priced roads and parking facilities and uh, and vehicle use and fuel, um, and we invested at least as much, we were willing to spend at least as many dollars to help somebody walk or bike to a local uh, service as we would spend to accommodate them driving to that destination. If we did that, so if we had a transportation system that was really efficient uh, and and diverse and efficient, so it gave you lots of options and encouraged you to use the most efficient option for each trip, um, most people would cut their automobile travel. The average American would cut its auto, their automobile travel by at least in half because mm-hmm. you would no longer, um, you or let's say you would you would find it really easy and convenient, and you would have some incentives to rely on walking and bicycling more for those local errands, and to use public transit, and to um, and to limit your automobile travel to those trips where it really does make sense. If we did that uh, now, when we have new technologies coming, so we apply that to the new technologies, well, the uh, COVID pandemic, for example, has proven that an awful lot of people can avoid physical travel by relying on telework, Uh, telecommuting, e-shopping, e-medicine, all of those can reduce uh, physical travel. And we also have new technologies that are going to make it easier, for example, to much, it can be much easier to use public transit. Uh, If you have an app on your phone, on your mobile phone that uh, can navigate you, can tell you what's the easiest and cheapest way to to make a particular trip and has uh, automated payment system, uh, payment uh, 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 features on that app. So you just wave your phone as you're getting on the bus or you can call up a ride hailing or a self-driving taxi and your phone covers all the expenses and and gives you real-time information when that vehicle is going to arrive and and gives you all the details. If that's available, an awful lot of automobile trips would disappear because the alternatives, the walking, biking, e-bikes, and uh, public transit all become uh, uh, more convenient and efficient with the new technologies. So, you know, my research suggests that if we are smart, we as individuals, the transportation system users, would rationally choose to drive an awful lot less and rely much more on walking and bicycling and uh, uh, ride hailing and public transit and eventually maybe uh, self-driving taxis simply because it's gonna, those are going to be much more convenient and affordable. It's not, of course, there'll be huge environmental and health benefits, but the real driver is simple economics. If, for example, we go from all your parking being free, unpriced, 
to you paying directly for your parking, that is a huge incentive for people to choose more efficient modes. It doesn't say you'll never drive, but it tests every car trip, forcing you to, to ask yourself, is that is it is driving really worth an extra two or three bucks, or should I save money and use my e-bike, or um, or should I telework? Should I or or maybe uh, use e-commerce? Should I should I order something from the um, on the internet rather than actually drive to a to a to a, to a store? So those are the kind of incentives or that's the kind of system that I think we want to develop if we want a truly optimal transportation system. And I think, I mean, this is, I think this is a really good episode because we've been talking about various technologies and things out there that uh, in the TDM space that are exciting and, and could help people, um, you know, move places in a more efficient way. And what, what you've been talking about, um, Todd, is that, uh, we need to put some things in place some policy levers in place to, to help encourage that further. But, uh, as we all have seen in the, in those of us in the TDM space know these non-car alternatives can and will likely ultimately be better choices from every kind of aspect, cost, time, and, um, emissions being the, the key three there. Um, so I think it's, it's exciting. I want to kind of end on on that exciting note, but let's, um, like we always do, let's take a, a step back and, and kind of, you've said a lot and there's a lot here to to digest, but just so everyone kind of can take away the key points, can you just summarize for us here, why will smart planning for emerging transportation technologies, as, you, as your book states, why will this help save the planet? Well, um... Of course, uh, there are uh, transportation has huge impacts on our lives in many ways, and of course, if we're environmentalists, we're asking how can it save the planet. Uh, if we were uh, social equity activists, we'd be asking how can these new technologies and services help achieve equity goals. And if we were health professionals, <clears throat> we'd be asking how can they help achieve public health goals. Um, and, you know, what my research indicates is that uh, the, our current transportation policies and planning tend to favor resource-intensive, expensive modes and sprawled development patterns over more affordable, efficient, and accessible uh, transportation systems. And so we have an opportunity to rethink our priorities and, and identify uh, the, the policies and programs that can really correct that, to correct the inefficiencies from our current system and so uh, transportation demand management, broadly speaking, is a set of strategies that affect how people travel, that affects your travel decisions, how you're going to uh, go shopping and how you're going to get to work and, and, and how you're going to go uh, 
to, to uh, recreate or, or socialize. And um, what my research suggests is that already uh, there's tremendous potential for um, efficiency and affordability gains, even with existing technologies. And those could improve a lot as we get these new technologies. Um, you know, in terms of saving the planet, what my research indicates is that it, if, if we had more uh, uh, efficient transportation options, so there was more investment in walking and bicycling facilities and higher quality public transit, and we also had those incentives, so you, had, you paid directly rather than indirectly for parking facilities and for roads, and, um, and your insurance was distance-based, so you save money your insurance premiums go down when you reduce your annual mileage. If we had those in place, people would drive a lot less. And then we have we could have incentives to shift from gasoline and, and diesel powered to more electric or, or um, hydrogen powered vehicles. And that provides additional environmental benefits. Equally important, keep in mind, even a, an electric car requires this huge environmentally harmful infrastructure, all the roads and parking facilities. That's impervious surface. It's, it's blacktop that adds to the heat island effect. Every time we pave an uh, acre of land, we're losing habitat, wildlife habitat. All of these are, are imp very important impacts to, to consider, uh, environmental impacts. And they all get reduced if we own fewer automobiles and drive less and rely more on the resource efficient modes. So what my research and what my book emphasize is the, 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 the very large and diverse benefits that we can gain if we're discerning in our transportation decisions and we're, as travelers, we're encouraged to use the more resource-efficient modes. That's the, that's the real key to, to, to creating an a environmentally responsible transportation system. Incentives to use the most resource-efficient modes whenever possible. Great. I mean, I think this, is, this has been a really informative uh, episode for particularly the... Uh, transportation planners out there. Um, I really encourage you all to check out Todd's work in his book. Um, like I said, uh, you can get all this information from this episode and future ones if you subscribe to our email list at betweenthelines.io. Um, and definitely make sure as well to uh, give us a, a follow and a like on your, your favorite podcast streaming services, whether that's um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anything else. Um, and definitely take a, a watch, you know, take, take the time to, to watch our conversation as well on YouTube. Um, you can kind of be more in the conversation if you're, if you're along for the ride there. Um, as always, this has been a great conversation. We have one, um, one more kind of exciting announcement. We're going to be having a couple of live episodes from the ACT International Conference in a couple of weeks. So if you're not able to make it to the conference um, and you wanna kind of keep up with what's going on, we'll be talking to some folks there uh, as well. 
Um, more information on that will be coming shortly, but let's finish it off here, Todd. Like we always do, we have this um, music playlist that we're building full of songs from our guests. And we'd love to add in a song uh, from you. Is there anything you'd like to add? And, and what would that be? Right. Well, um, I was born in the wrong time period because I wish that I had been there uh, during the Harlem Renaissance in the early 20th century and was able to hear Duke Ellington's band at mm. its peak. So one of my favorite songs of all time is uh, Ellington and Strayhorn's magnificent uh, song, Take the A-Train, which mm. is really about uh, rail transportation. The A-Train, of course, was is the New York subway that goes to Harlem. Sure. And the music, if, if you're familiar with Duke Ellington's uh, work, um, much of his uh, much of his music is really uh, based on the rhythms of a train ride. You feel mm. that that rhythm. It's not just a sound; it's a feeling that you would have when you were traveling uh, by train uh, in, say, the 1920s and 30s. It it's an immersive experience, and um, so take the A train and other uh, Ellington Strayhorn um, music embodies the feel of rail transport. And that song is all about using public transportation to enjoy the social life, the, the music and the food and the, the, the celebration of life that existed there at that time. So awesome. take the A train, Andy. I like it. Well, we'll take it, take it from Duke Ellington himself, public transit. You can't, you can't get better than it. Um, Todd, thanks for being on. This has been a great conversation and everyone thanks for watching or listening. And we'll be back next week with more, more interesting episodes on TDM here with Between the Lines. Todd, thank you for being on. Thank you very much, Andy, and greetings to all the audience. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Between the Lines with Andy Keaton. Be sure to subscribe to hear next week's episode and check out our exclusive commuter playlists on Spotify.